Albacete, Albacete. How do I begin to describe this wonderful city in the southern half of the mission? Alma chapter 5, verse 60. And now I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call after you. And if you will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold. And ye are his sheep. And he commandeth you that ye suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you, that ye may not be destroyed. Albathete was a beautiful city with wonderful people and a really great, very small branch that had endured a number of years of apostasy. On top of that, it was one of those areas where missionaries had kind of been goof-offs for a long time. And so when I went down there with a diligent companion, we had a lot of work to do. This is Welcome to the Faro, episode 11, Into the Land of Quixote. Don Quixote de la Mancha was what is esteemed to be the first novel ever written by Miguel de Cervantes in 1605. Well, it was written before that, but he published it in 1605. I was sent to Albacete at the end of the summer of 2004. Do the math. 399 years. They were just a few months away from celebrating the 400th anniversary of a man who was... Let's say he was the Spanish Shakespeare, not necessarily by prolifics as much as by impact and legacy. Shakespeare wrote a lot more uh, in the way of title count, but the only book in the world that's been translated into more languages than Quixote is the Bible, and it's been in continuous publication for all that time. Uh, Due to that, the city is full of statues of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, the the tall, slightly blind, slightly loopy caballero and his short, fat squire and his donkey. Um, beautiful story. I, I haven't read the original all the way through. I'm familiar with it, but I ended up grabbing a copy while I was in the town and grabbing a big, fat, thick English copy when I got back home. And like a lot of my Spanish novels, it has sat on my shelf since then because I find it a daunting prospect. But I will get through it one of these days. Um, but the more important part about the, uh, the transfer to Albacete was that I was getting a new companion. His name was Michael Evenhouse, and he was from... Leighton, Utah. Sorry, Mike, if I got that wrong, because I, to this day, constantly mix up Leighton and Logan. They're both north of me, for one. <laughs> but great, great guy. Um, you know, smart kid, too. He did a lot of, like, business and econ studying before his mission, and he was going to go into that after the mission. Uh, you know, suit and tie type. Uh, really good teacher. And uh, very very diligent. He had a, a really good drive. Uh, he was he was working on learning the language. He had this kind of, call it a, a physical tick or mannerism, where he, uh, like his eyes would get really big 
when he was getting into a, a subject that he was really passionate about, like to the point where some people thought he was just goofing off or joking. Like he he would get he'd get really like zealous if he was talking about something that was important to him. But uh, it was good because he'd be a terrible poker player, but it was it was a tell when you could uh, see him go off about something when he was being really serious. Uh, but I, yeah, I found out he was going to be my companion, um, and his last companion, strangely enough, had also been from Henderson, Nevada. In fact, I, I met him on my way down to uh, to Valencia. Um, Elder Lystrup, Nate Lystrup, was coming home. He had finished his mission in Albacete, his last four transfers he'd been there. Uh, he kind of felt like he'd gotten shortchanged because he spent his entire mission in the south. He was hoping to get to go to the north for part of it. And um, President Watson had even, you know, tried placing him in a northern city somewhere just so that he'd, he'd get a chance to see it. Uh, you know, he would he would take requests into consideration sometimes, but mostly, you know, he, well, not mostly, primarily, he would follow the impressions that he got as part of his calling as to who needed to be where and with whom. And... Uh, there was only one elder that he could have possibly moved into Albacete for that final transfer, and he was a native Spaniard, and he was from Madrid, and he had you know, spent his last few years before the mission just a few miles away from Albacete, and he told President, like, I'm really sorry, but if I go there, I'm going to be super distracted. I mean, half my friends are living in Albacete and going to school there, so I, I just couldn't do it. And so President followed that prompting, and uh, unfortunately for Elder Lystrup, it meant that he never got to really see the North. But uh, I crossed paths with him in the uh, mission office as uh, I was getting ready to, to transfer and head down south. And we caught up real quick, and I you know, bowed him farewell uh, as he headed back to Henderson. He gave me a quick rundown of the area, and he painted kind of a dire picture. Um, we were told that uh, there had previously been a branch president, we'll call him Pepe, who uh, had kind of gone apostate while he was in charge there and started changing things and going against uh, church doctrine and church policy in the handbook. And he'd ended up being released from his calling and he made a big stink and caused a bunch of damage and uh, a whole bunch of people fell away. And that was a couple of years prior. So, on average, we could expect around a dozen members to show up to church on Sunday, and member work was kind of dead, and they had sort of fallen into a rut. But hey, my companion was good, and the apartment was nice, and Albacete was a beautiful city, and not a very busy one. Total population was around 150,000. So, I, I tried not to take that to heart, tried not to you know, paint in my head this negative picture of the place before I even got there. But, you know, it'd be foolish of me to ignore the advice of somebody who had been there for six months when I hadn't even set foot in the town. So uh, I said a, a very eager goodbye to Elder Gordon, and I hopped on a train at the Barsant's train station and headed south, all the way down the coast, several hours to Valencia, where I met up with the zone leaders and the missionaries there. It was transfer day, so a whole bunch of us were crossing through the hub at the same time. I ran into uh, Ermana McPherson, who was getting transferred, obviously, somewhere south from... I'm not sure if it was Saragossa. It could have been. She could have been there for six months. I don't. I didn't really keep track. And then um, met up with my companion, Elder Evenhouse, 
his name had a, a Dutch spelling. His father was from the Netherlands, but had you know, immigrated to the States when he was younger. So, uh, and funnily enough, there was an elderly couple in the Albacete branch that were also Dutch, the Dequel family. They lived in, I can't remember the name of the, the, uh, the Pueblo, like Yesca or something. It's a couple of hours away from Albacete. They they took a drive to get into into Albacete every Sunday, and Hermano Dequel was the the ward pianist. And so whenever the Dequels were there, you know we'd have music for the hymns. Um, during my time there, they moved back to the Netherlands, but they were they were very diligent, very hardworking. They did a lot of family history work for the ward or for the branch, and we were very fortunate to have them. Um, but as I uh, got to Valencia and we took the two-hour train ride from Valencia to Albacete, Elder Evenhouse gave me a rundown of the area and it kind of echoed what Elder Lystrip had said. But he was he was more eager to kind of change the mindset out there. And I said, you know, great. I want to hit the ground running. I, I want to work hard. I want to get stuff done. You know, I'm almost ready to pass off my Nivelle 4. I've been studying hard, all that stuff. So uh, he's, he was excited to have that you know understandably elder lystrip was was kind of running on fumes at the end he kept things going but um you know it was just hard in a hard area but that was kind of a mindset that president wanted us to get rid of and in fact even back in the february conference that we'd had with elder hillam uh, he spent a lot of time talking about mindsets and how they're established and what we have to do to break them so we were going to go into all with that day and, and shake up the rhythm, shake up the procedure of, of how work had been done there for a long time. Now, as for my new zone, Albacete was in the Valencia Pueblos zone, and it consisted of at least four cities, but I feel like I was missing one. Cataroja, which was kind of a glorified Pueblo of Valencia. It was uh, one of those slightly small towns that was you know mostly industrial and uh, very quiet by comparison to, with Valencia. I actually loved going there every time we had to you know visit with the zone leaders and stuff. Um, just a, a very quiet, beautiful, open, summery little town. And then on the coast you had Gandia and Benidorm. Benidorm was it was like mostly British. I think the, the branch president or bishop, I think he was a branch president, was, was British there. Uh, it was one of those rich, fancy coastal cities where, uh, you know, a, a lot of rich Brits would come to have a second home or a summer home or whatever, and the population would double in the summertime, you know, one of those places. And only sisters served in, in Benidorm. Uh, I guess there had been some problem with elders being there before, but sometimes those things can just be rumors, so... Uh, I wasn't 100% sure. So yeah, you had Gandia, Cataroja, Benidorm, and then you know us out in Albacete, way west of everybody else. Super boonies. Uh, much like Zarg and Tarragona, I would also spend my mission with, uh, or my, my time there with my own bathroom, because it had been a bigger area, it had had four missionaries before, but it was scaling down, and I was kind of in that sweet spot in between where uh, we were getting ready to you know, close out our rental of that apartment and, and downgrade to something smaller. But during my time there, we had a very nice apartment in, in Albacete at a, a very quiet edge of, of the city. 
Pueblos are, are small towns in Spain. And so all of these were, were the small towns where the, the church was strong enough to have a branch and to benefit from a missionary presence. Uh, my zone leader was Elder Green from California, a guy who's still a good friend of mine to this day. He's consulted with me on a lot of uh, the work that I was doing on the Brother Trucker Book Club podcast. And uh, I, I hit him up for ideas on, on improving my work all the time. And then his companion was Elder Zorad. And then out in, in, uh, out in Gandia, you had Elder... What's his freaking name? Bowman. Crazy kid from Kentucky. Loved that dude. His companion was Elder Anderson. And then you had uh, you know, me and Elder Evenhouse in Albacete and the Hermanas out in Benidorm. Shout out to Hermana Campbell and Hermana Willardson. Willardson was, was great. Um, another missionary that I'm still friends with, mostly because of social media, but that I, I'm able to keep in touch with to this day. So a uh, great zone, and I loved getting together to them as, as infrequently as we did. By comparison, we, we got together a lot more often up in the Sabade zone just because it was easier, but it was expensive and impractical to travel every single week from Albacete to Valencia. So uh, we didn't do it that much. In fact, technically, I was a district leader out in Albacete. Our district included Albacete and Alcoy, but Alcoy was closed. There There were no missionaries there. It had been open at the start of my mission, but we were starting to see this where some of the smaller towns that could weather a loss with of missionaries weren't going to have missionaries. And uh, so Alcoy had closed, and uh, our district was just two of us. Um, subsequently, Elder Evenhouse and I would, would hold district meetings, but it was kind of pointless to do that because really, like, we could resolve everything in a district meeting with, uh, you know, just a, a quick companionship inventory or, or whatever, since it was just the two of us. So we, we did a couple of them, but it was kind of just a waste of time. So we stopped it and just spent that time uh, hitting the streets instead. Now, Evenhouse and Lystrup had established a pattern that kind of became a grind, and in missionary work that can work against you. Um, you know, not to condemn them too harshly or anything, but you know, I, I understand when when you constantly get the same response from everybody everywhere, it it's easy to develop a rhythm as a coping mechanism for that. They had established what they called the Vuelta, the the tour, the loop. Uh, They'd mapped out the entire city and they'd planned out a walking route that took them from the apartment kind of all the way around the outer perimeter where there was the most foot traffic, uh, whether it was around shops or businesses or restaurants or hotels. And, you know, they'd have the greatest chance of running into the most people. And we, we ran the Vuelta five times a day because it would take us about two hours to do it. Um, we could deviate if, uh, if we saw, you know, more foot traffic in the park in the center of the city. And we'd go in there, we'd try to talk to people. Um, but that was pretty much it for, for days on end. And I was looking for ways to shake that up. Uh, we wanted to maybe set up a pancarta in Albacete the way that we had in, in Zaragoza. But these things are not easily done in Spain. You can't just set up a sign somewhere and hand out pamphlets. You've got to have a permit to do that. Um, even though 
on paper they have free speech laws stuff like that is like you've got to set up a permit to set up a sandwich board somewhere because i, I guess you're using a public walkway i wasn't 100 percent clear on the justification i just knew that if we tried to set something up like that and we didn't have paperwork for it we'd get in trouble and uh, in fact we tried that in tarragona just you know had a sheet of paper on the ground that i would like draw on or something and uh we were able to do that in Zaragoza, but we were not able to do that in Tarragona, and we looked into the permit process at the uh, Ayuntamiento building in Albacete. Never got a clear answer, and so we kind of scrapped that idea. But you know, five, six days a week, we'd be out running the Vuelta. We'd try to find people. We would set up appointments with members. Um, you know, I'd come by and introduce myself. You know, I'm the new elder. We'd go visit Angelita. She was... Um, probably the most faithful member in that entire city, her and her husband Juanito, uh, you know, were, were Castellanos Manchegos through and through, and just incredibly faithful people. Angelita was great. Her sister, Guadalupe, was not a member, but was very familiar with the missionaries, her husband Ross as well. Very nice people, but they, you know, held really hard to the Catholic traditions. And uh, we would go over to their house every Friday night for about, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. They had a little fiesta with us. We'd have, you know, chocolate milk and cookies or something. And we'd talk with them and talk with their kids. But, and, you know, it was, it was almost frustrating to an extent. On Mondays when we had FHE, Guadalupe would come with her whole family. And sometimes she'd even teach the lesson. And she would finish it in El Nombre de Jesucristo. Like, she, she knew the whole procedure. But that's all it was to her, I think, was just a procedure. It, it was something that she knew how to, to do, you know, by format. But there was no, there was no testimony of it. It was just something that she was, she was good at doing with us. And, you know, I was, I was grateful for her company and for her willingness to open up her home to us. Um, we just, we were in a constant state of, of fellowshipping with her. Uh, we also had the English class on Wednesday nights. So that, you know, in between... Um, you know, our preparation day and the English class, we might fit in a Vuelta or another appointment and then, you know, go teach at the chapel. And we had a student there who was pretty regular. His name was Julian. And uh, his family kind of reminded me of the Santidrian Bernal family in Zaragoza. Only Julian's family weren't members, but he and his wife were great. They loved having the missionaries over. She would make us a mean tortilla. They had us over for Christmas dinner one, uh, you know, that year to... Uh, you know, eat with them, and, you know, they had me bless the food, and they had three daughters that were kind of all teenaged, and sort of in the rebellious phase, one of them had this, uh, this embroidered wristband with, like, one or two cuss words on there or something, and I saw it, you know, in English, and I saw it, and I kind of smirked, and I looked at his daughter, and I was like, nice, uh, nice muñequero there, and she saw it, and she kind of got this look in her face, and, like, hid the, the wristband under the table, and Julian looked at her, and he goes, what is that? What does that mean? And I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cause any trouble here. <laughs> just, just amused. Um, but yeah, we, they had great contacts with people. They were, the missionaries were, were, uh, were good in that city. The last two, you know, Lystrip and Evenhouse, uh, they'd started breaking the cycle of expectation that people had that missionaries were just sent to Albeth that day if they were goof-offs because the place was already in trouble. Those were some of the good people. There was one bad apple and as I've been gearing up for these episodes I have wondered what to say about this man and I know right out the gate I don't want to say his name 
he was just that big of a piece of crap. In fact, it goes a lot farther than that. Uh, if I have ever met three people in my life that I would say that I know outright are just evil, he's a very, very, very strong contender for one or two of those spots. This is a guy who, I don't know if he had a mental disorder so much as he had just an outright personality disorder and he had been enabled by a bad family growing up and... Uh, I mean, the word sociopath gets thrown around a lot by people who, who kind of use it as an oversimplification for difficult people. I, I think it might have genuinely applied to this man. The name I'm going to give him is Randy, we'll say. That's obviously an American name. He was not American. He spoke English pretty well. But this guy was was a pox on the branch of Albathete, and I would have a couple of heated run-ins with him during my six months there. I'd only spent three months in Tarragona. I was going to spend a total of four transfers in Albathete. Uh, interestingly enough, and I say that with a wink and a nudge because I don't believe a whole lot in coincidences in missionary work, the guy that baptized him was not fondly remembered by the locals in Albathete because he had effectively baptized Randy so that he could say, oh, I baptized somebody in Albathete. And there is absolute truth to the statement that it is better to baptize nobody than to baptize somebody who is going to damage the locals. You're leaving a mess in the locals' hands. Also, that you can say that you baptize in a hard area, in a hard country. That's not why you're there. And you are causing people problems for years and years to come. Randy was a guy who liked to manipulate people for attention. He didn't have an honest bone in his body. He would say and do whatever he thought would get you to pay attention to him and to, to feel like like he was was progressing he had been baptized by this this elder whose name i'm also not going to say who also happened to be kind of visiting albathete shortly after i got there i was there for two or three weeks when we ran into this guy just kind of doing the tourist thing and he goes hey are you you guys are the missionaries what's up he said hey how's it going uh you know usually when americans stopped us they were either tourists or you know rms that were there visiting the mission so I guess still tourists, but you know, not just your vanilla tourists. And he asked how things were going, and he's like, hey, so is Angelita still active? We said, yeah, sure, she's a rock. And he goes, okay, so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he asked about Randy. And I just got this feeling. And I said, um, I wouldn't say that he's active, but we still meet with him. And I said, why? And he goes, uh, oh, I'm, I'm the missionary that baptized him. And just in the few interactions that I'd had with Randy, I knew that was a problem. And I said, okay, um, you here to visit the members? And he goes, no, it's, it's probably better if they don't know that I was here. Actually, don't tell them that I was here. And I was like, hmm, all right. And, uh, you know, even House kind of felt the same way about it. And uh, we parted ways. I didn't run into the guy again while we were there. Just, you know, strange that it 
we would run into him shortly after you know I showed up and found out about the uh, the inside baseball of Albacete's branch history. We had a meeting that afternoon with uh, Martin Morey, I think was his name. No, that couldn't have been it. I was thinking about somebody else. A guy who was the uh, the branch mission leader. And I told him, hey, I ran into Elder So-and-so, and he he got heated. He goes, that guy's here, that guy's here in this town. I didn't get all the details on what he did while he was here outside of baptizing Randy, but I say here like I'm there right now. But he he definitely caused some problems in all but that day. And my takeaway of that was that it strengthened my resolve to be the cleanup crew, to be the, the change of pace crew, to put a stop to to this cycle of, of crap that was going on down there. And and President had kind of made that clear in, in a quick word that he'd had with me when I stopped by the mission office prior to heading down there. It's a wonderful city, wonderful members, work hard while you're there. I said, okay. Um, Randy tried to get appointments with the missionaries several times a week, always under the guise of, oh, I'm having a faith crisis or or, oh, I need you guys to visit with me for half an hour or so. And he'd try to drag it out to an hour to two hours. And I wasn't going to do it. Yes, it was drudgery to walk the streets of Albacete on the Vuelta and to not have a whole lot of people to teach. But sometimes that's better. I'd say most times in this case, it's better than wasting more time than is even prudent to any extent with Randy. And you could tell that he'd gotten used to having missionaries kind of cater to that. And, you know, I would, I would teach him, I would answer his questions, he would try to, to introduce inappropriate nuance or to, to needle things with the doctrine, and he was doing this to, to uh, other churches as well, to evangelists and to uh, a local branch of branch, as if like they were fledgling at all, Catholics, um, because it was easy to get attention from Christians that were doing missionary work. He'd kind of uh, taken the Pokemon approach to uh, to church memberships, where he tried to tried to catch them all, tried to be part of every one of them, and um, that just wasn't going to fly with me. I wasn't going to let him waste my time. I wasn't going to let him waste the Lord's time. So uh, I would give him reading assignments, say, "Study this and tell me what you learned from it." And you know, a couple of days later, hey, can you guys come visit me again? Well, have you read? No, I haven't. Well, then you know what you need to do. And he'd tried to get angry with me one time. He's, he said, hey, you guys are liars. You, you're not too busy to come visit me. You're just not walking the streets or whatever. Like, he sent that to us in a text message. And I called him back, and I blew up on him. I said, you, you're not going to tell me how to spend the, you know, my time as a missionary when you're not putting any effort into this at all. And he, uh, his response to that was to to feign piety and humility like oh you're right i'm sorry and you know most days he wouldn't most sundays he wouldn't come to church if he did he would come in street clothes and so he started making these apologetic gestures he'd show up in a shirt and tie like oh okay you know yeah you're actually going to make some effort no it was just enough effort to to make kind of a hollow apology to try to get us to back to come back over to his house so he could banter and waste time and talk about masturbation and his porn addiction and stuff and and uh, a couple of the members had confidently told us that like we're we're pretty sure that he's actually homosexual and is just trying to come on to the missionaries because he was constantly talking about that subject matter with us, and he would try to get us to talk about you know, sexual perversions and everything like that. And I told him flat out, 
you, you're wasting our time and you're offending the Lord by doing this and this is not going to fly. Um, he was very good at English. He'd show up to the English classes. He'd try to find out who we were teaching so that he could, you know, show up in the middle of, uh, of meetings with our investigators and start spouting off false doctrine or talk about how the church hated him or something. He was, he was deliberately trying to be a hindrance to the work because he knew it got a rise out of us. And then he'd turn around and again, try the whole piety cycle. And it, it was just a game that he liked to play. He lived on a public dole. He had financial support from his family and he was bored and he liked to mess with people. And yeah, he was, he was a pox on the people of Albathete. He was a wolf that had snuck into the herd. And while I was a sheep in that herd, I was going to kick back and I was going to kick hard and I kicked whenever the occasion demanded it and I would have many more run-ins with Randy. We didn't really pick up any progressing investigators in that first transfer. Um, as much as I was trying new ideas with Elder Evenhouse, we, we did end up kind of sticking to um, sticking to the formula that he and Lystrip had stuck to, namely, you know, doing the Vuelta, deviating from that when we felt impressed, and trying to get appointments with the members during the week, just to check in on them, see how they were doing, see who we could invite to come with us uh, to discussions with the members, checking in on Angelita frequently, and then having that Friday appointment with her at her sister's house. Um, and then Saturdays were just dedicated to even more proselyting because we would shorten our media dia by an hour and a half because it was easy, easier to meet up with people on the weekends. Um, so our first transfer was defined pretty much by that. Uh, as we headed towards the end of August and kind of into September, um, and I know that I break up these episodes by month, but this is a reason why I want to kind of tackle September in this. We had taken a quick trip out to uh, to Cataroja, where I, I met up with Elder Bowman, who was the, the other district leader, and had him pass me off on my fourth novel, so that before I even hit my halfway mark in, in the mission, um, you know, there we were. I, I had uh, completed the highest level of, of the study program, got me passed off, and then the next day, I, I believe this was how that trip went down. We had our zone conference in Valencia. And two foundational things, I want to say, you know, core memories of my mission happened at this zone conference in particular. The first one was in my interview with President. Um, you know, he interviewed me and then he interviewed Elder Evenhouse. And uh, he asked how things were going. You know, he did his normal bit with you know, sharing his, his prepared message and then giving me some tailored advice. And he said, now, Elder, I just want to say one thing to you. I said, okay. He goes, quiet dignity. And this was, was kind of a hail back to what he had told me in my personal interview in January. But he was, he didn't need to be, you know, as blunt or as detailed with it. Um, and I, f I think what prompted it was this. In that first zone conference that I'd had in Tarragona, 
where we won the Charla game. I was so happy. I was so excited. Like I said, the trophy was that rust-colored orange tie. We had a musical number after that, and I had kind of flaunted our victory by tying the tie uh, around my head backwards so that they could see it while I was playing the piano. And that that works for me as a cheerleader, but as a missionary, president was absolutely right. I needed to have more dignity than that. Um, didn't have to erase my personality, but I did need to dignify my conduct. conduct. Um, you know, I couldn't be, I couldn't be a goof off and I was no longer a teenager and I had been a missionary for almost a year and there were still things that I needed to sharpen up and dial in. And he didn't need to elaborate on what they were just by saying that. It put me in a state of reflection where I could figure out what those things were and examine my own behavior and start to sharpen things up, like I said. So he said that to me, and I, I can still hear him saying it the way that he said it and looking me straight in the eye. Eye contact was President Watson's way of drilling a message home. Elder, quiet dignity. And I thought, okay. You know, I'm, I've been given a big responsibility in Albathete, and I'm, I'm a senior missionary companion now. I, uh, I, I need to focus on that. I've done the novels. Now I need to be uh, just a great senior companion. The other part of, of that zone conference happened at the end. Uh, we have the interviews. We have the Charla game. We have a series of of, uh, you know, practical discussions from the Ayudantes, a talk from Hermana Watson, a talk from President Watson, and then he opens the floor to uh, the bearing of testimonies. And usually any elders that are going home, that transfer will get to speak first, and then you know, anybody else who feels impressed can get up and share a testimony. And I, I normally did. I normally shared my testimony. Um, I don't recall whether I did on this one, but I know at the end of the meeting president did and he bore his testimony on miracles and he cited specific examples of miracles that missionaries in that zone had seen whether they occurred in that zone or whether they had seen things happen in other zones other areas of their mission he says you know i i know that elder so-and-so saw it in this place and sister so-and-so saw it in that place i don't remember those specific examples but then he he stood up and you know chills down my spine I still remember him saying and there are two elders in this room who are going to see it in Albathete and after having been there for a month and gotten a feel for how stagnant things were there and how the ward was troubled and we had Randy to deal with and all that stuff like it man that lit a fire in me I I wanted to go out there and and just hit the ground running and, uh, you know, conference ended, you know, we had a closing prayer and everything, said goodbye to everybody. Even House and I made our way back to the train station to Valencia Nord so that we could pick up our train out to Albathete. And uh, we, we got back to Albathete, and I kid you not, that very night, two hours later, we stepped off the station in Albathete, and my phone rings, and it's a man named Oscar. And he is from Paraguay. He is in town with some friends of his who aren't members. Oscar is a member. He's a return missionary even. And he says, you know, hey, I wanted to bring them by to meet you. 
uh, when's a good time and if I think of my testimony as a building and it's got a number of cornerstones probably more than four because that's just been the experience of my life that is absolutely one of them you take the sum total of my teenage years and my teenage prayers and the things that put me on the path to serve a mission and that's one of them um the experience with the just one door in Saragossa, that's another one. You know, all, all together, my time with Higley, really. And that moment with President saying that, and with us running into Oscar and his friends that same night, God was up there pulling the strings and orchestrating his servants to make that happen. It would, it would be a long, slow path of progress over the next couple of months as we worked with Oscar and his friends, and we'll get into more details about them um, and how we would have to work to, to get a couple of them to the baptismal font and help Oscar work through some things that were going on in his life, as well as shielding them from Randy and certain other problems in Albuquerque, but President Watson was absolutely right. Elder Evenhouse and I saw miracles in Albuquerque, and I cannot wait to tell you more about them, but you will have to wait to hear more about them because I'm a little long for this episode. So, as always, tune in next week. Until then, I love you. Keep the faith.